There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses your stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at The Times. This episode of Right Lane is sponsored by the Scripps Howard Awards. The Scripps Howard Foundation and Right Lane are collaborating to spotlight some of the best journalism of 2019. The awards show will be April 16th in Cincinnati. In the weeks ahead, we'll talk with some of the Scripps winners on this podcast. Today's topic, the language of storytellers. So once upon a time, Lane wasn't a narrative writer and I wasn't a narrative editor. We came into the business like a lot of you probably, focused on covering crime briefs and council meetings in an inverted pyramid style. Even when we wrote features, we didn't approach them as narratives because we didn't know any better. In the late 90s, we met at the Virginian Pilot and worked together on a narrative team. And both of us, for both of us, I think it was a process of learning by doing. We were given the time and support to hone our craft. One thing that became clear early on was that storytellers have a different vocabulary, and it's important to speak and understand the language. So here are some of the words that come to mind when we think about telling stories, and we've, we've got this like alphabetical list going here. So, um, which is not to say, I guess, we should start by saying, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the inverted pyramid. The inverted pyramid gets a lot of work done, um, and it's a simple format, and it came up for a reason, partly so that people could cut the endings without a problem. Um, gives you all the information up top there, right, so it doesn't you, give you any incentive right, to it doesn't give you any incentive. So, um, but anyway, so, of course, we both love narrative work, and we're going to start with uh, the word action. So... These kind of stories, we are always looking to, 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 to follow the action, right? And what does that mean for you? Something's got to happen. <laughs> I mean, it, I think a lot of times with news, you're covering things that already happened. And, and I really like when I'm writing a narrative to be able to actually witness or watch something happen or least case scenario, be able to recreate some action right. that was happening. Something um, went on. Right. right. And, and, and it also helps then... I think I'm going to usurp your next word here, but it, it helps come up with a question because I, I want to be able to ask and answer a question mm-hmm. um, to the readers to keep, to propel them to want to continue reading. And so when you have action, you can say, oh, is the guy going to win the, win the race? Is the guy going to get the right? girl? Is the dog going to find his way home? Is, you know, what's going to happen in, in terms of the action becomes my question. Yeah. And it's not, we're not, lo- you know, looking for opportunities where people are just sitting and pondering, what are they doing? What can we follow? Yeah, the next word we have is arc, which is, of course, the polar opposite of an inverted pyramid, right? But we're looking for an arc. We, we talk about that. Um, where is it going to start? Where is it going to go? Where is it going to finish? Um, you know, what's going to happen from point A to point B? Uh, and, you're, and you're purposely looking for stories that have that quality to them, right? Something to build, yeah, mm-hmm. with, within that arc. Like, where does, it, where does it build and ramp up? Right. Um, um, cinematic, which is not a word that I ever used in this business early on. Did you? 
No, and I'd never thought about it. I mean, I was an English major and my mom was an English teacher. So a lot of the vocabulary of storytelling, you know, came up through that literature, uh, novel type writing. But the idea of cinematic, I think the first time I thought of that was at a Tom French workshop where he talked about like closing his eyes and watching the movie unfold. And I thought, oh, that's such a wonderful way to imagine the opening of your story. And it kind of took me away from the inverted, there's nothing less cinematic than an inverted pyramid, you know? So it really forced me to sort of like detach myself, but also think in scenes, you know, as things unfolding, not just like starting in with the talking head. Right, right. Um, Denouement? I, I have a hard time saying that word, so I'm glad you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand that to be more of the falling action, you know, like right. like you're, you you're, you're working up to the arc and the pinnacle and, and the climax is something big or, or small, but something that is going to get resolved and the denouement, right? Sorry, yeah, denouement, denouement. Is, is what comes afterward um, before you get the real resolution. But not a word, really, that you... I mean, I, I didn't even know that word until I started working on narratives. It was not a word that I, you know, I was not an English major. My mom likes that word. Yeah. It's a journalism major. Journalism majors don't talk about that. <laughs> no, not at all. Because <laughs> usually we don't care about the denouement, yeah, right? Like right. if you're covering a news story, you don't really get to talk about it's what over. happened afterward or the aftermath. <laughs> yeah. Unless you go back and do a follow up. You're not like waiting for the victim to go home and cuddle their cat, you know, like. Um, of course, we talk about dialogue. Um, and that becomes so important in sort of bringing people to life, characters to life. And, um, oh, wait, I skipped character. I skipped character, Lane. You didn't stop me. All right. Character was there before Denouement. Um, we're, we're not, we don't think in terms so much as sources and, uh, you know, people you're quoting. You're looking for characters. You're looking for people who are going to be interesting to read about and not perfect characters. Those are actually kind of boring, right? Right. I like the ones with the little, you know, dirt on their shoulders of their feet, but also not necessarily the main character. You know, I, I like stories that take you behind who the main politician is and give you a different perspective on that or who the captain of the football team is and tell you about the athletic trainer instead. You know, I like characters that can provide the same insight to a scene, but aren't necessarily the leading actor that you would expect to follow along with. And think about how the word character just shapes it differently than source. Like, you know, you're looking, it, it immediately to me feels like you're, you're talking about something more comprehensive and you're getting more personal, right? And I think, you know, finding characters, the, the, uh, we've probably mentioned this before, but the more ordinary the character is, the more extraordinary thing I want to find out about them. And the more weird or outlandish the character is, the more ordinary I want to make them appear. Right, right. Um, Dialogue. So uh, we talk a lot about dialogue because, of course, it brings people to life. And um, as you go along in your career and you try to do more storytelling, um, you pull away from quotes. You pull away from quotes and the difference being the, somebody talking to a reporter. So somebody sitting and talking to Lane as opposed to Lane watching someone talking to a real person, right? You know, or, or in the middle of whatever they're in the middle of and you get to overhear them and you get to see what they're like and that helps shape um, who they are and how they're portrayed in your story. 
And dialogue, most of the time you have to be there for, you know, you can't recreate that. Um, you can find it in like court documents and stuff like that where it goes back and forth. But I used to write, you know, 70% of my stories were quotes of something told me. And, and now I try really hard to limit the number of quotes, but dialogue's great. And it's another reason to allow someone to bring a wingman on an interview. You know what I mean? And so they're not just talking to you. If all of a sudden they'll turn to their mom or their boyfriend and be like, well, that's not how it was, or that's not how I remembered it. And then you get a dialogue going and it's, so much more authentic for the readers than question, answer, question, answer. And getting, um, which we use a lot too, but inner, inner monologues that people have with themselves. So you're watching something unfold and you see somebody make a face or you see them smile or you see whatever. And then you get to go back through and say, well, what were you thinking just then? What was going on? What was happening in your mind? You know, because again, then all of that to me is making it more cinematic. It's making it feel more like you're watching it unfold. Oh yeah, and I think that's the to me that's the eight sensory details and di- and inner dialogue are the two things that really elevate a story to become a narrative. That you really feel like, "Oh, okay, the reporter writer really gets this," you know. So you can ask people those questions that I never would have thought to ask as a news reporter about not just like how did it make you feel, but mm-hmm. what were you thinking? What were you praying about? What were you worrying about? What was running through your head while you were supposed to be doing this other thing, you know, and get them to reflect on stuff like that is makes it such a powerful uh, internal look mm-hmm. at someone. Um, we talk about foreshadowing and which is weird, right? That's not a word that you grow up in newsrooms thinking about, but it is a word when you think about, um, what, you know, how reader is going to get rewarded um, if they stick through the story and what, what, what kind of hints do you want to lay in there so that later on, you, you know, you'll have an answer, but you keep propelling them forward. And we talked to Roy Peter Clark calls them gold coins. You know, he wants to scatter them along the path. So you feel like, okay, I'm being rewarded. Yeah. Dropping little things to pick up. So, you know, you want to get to the next one, you know, I think, I mean, with the inverted pyramid, there's zero chance of foreshadowing at all, right? You just kind of negate that possibility. Um, but it's so fun once you start figuring out how to do that, that you can put these little plants in that the, the readers can't help but wonder and keep reading along to find out what you meant by asking that question or dropping this hint or planting this idea. It helps you learn patience, too, which is which is hard because, yeah, again, you grow up into this business completely the opposite. You know, you're not supposed to have pa- You're supposed to go ahead and... Give them all they need. Unravel everything and the most important stuff first. And, you know, and then really there's not a lot of incentive to keep reading unless you're really fascinated by the topic, right? So foreshadowing, I think also really helps with um, transitions because it allows you to like take people to the end of a scene when they're watching or wondering about something and then go, okay, stop. Now I'm going to give you four paragraphs of background that you might not dig into or make it through if I hadn't just asked this question that you want to know what happens next. So they're great transitions. Um, added the word pace because we talk a lot about pace and that's, and not in the, in the sense that everything's got to hurry up. There are times you want to slow down, but is it the right pacing for the moment in the story and what you're trying to do with it? Um, again, not a word that really, I don't remember an editor ever talking to me about pace (laughs) and I was a reporter for seven years and we never had that conversation. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll have that now. You think, oh wait, we need to pick it up here or we need to... Are we, or do we need to slow it down? Because it's such an important moment that we need to, to keep people in it. I, I think it was really easy for me when I started doing this to, to fast forward, to, to speed up, mm-hmm. especially boring sections. Like they needed this and this and this, and then, okay, dispense of that part of the story. I liked doing that. I like 
fast forwarding readers through the stuff they need to know, but might not be that interesting. But it was really, really, really hard for me to learn to slow down a scene. And um, again, Tom French, another shout out to him. Yeah. He he sat with me and walked me through a scene and in, in, in a movie and just but basically kept hitting pause and saying, okay, what happened here? Nothing. Right. Not true. The windshield wipers just went on, you know, and learning the little tiny moments that actually you can slow down the most important scenes to build tension and suspense um, by paying attention to small things. Did he show you the scene in Witness? The movie yes, that's Witness? exactly what we watched. Is that the one? We should do a whole podcast on that, Tom. Okay. Yeah, that, that, it's a great. I mean, if you've seen the movie Witness, if you haven't seen the movie Witness, go get this movie Witness. Um, it's an old Harrison Ford movie where he was he an FBI agent. He's investigating some murder, and he ends up living, living amongst, among among the Amish. And the scene that that Tom plays for people all the time to get them to think in terms of being storytellers is this barn raising scene, where um, there's a bunch. There's so many things that are playing out in this like what four or five minute scene where no one's talking. No one's talking in this scene, which is another good um, sort of lesson for reporters because how much you can take away from when even when people aren't talking. So you see all the, you see the gender roles that they have. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, you see the romance that's playing out. You see um, the hierarchy of like, you know, the 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 patriarch and the respect they have for him. You see a community coming together. There's so much shit happening in four minutes, you know, and you get to really, you get to really see all of that play out, but you're right. And like, I, we talk a lot about movie making, you know, when we're talking about being storytellers, because we think a lot about how people make movies and the choices they make to what to give you and what not to give you. Um, so that's important. It's a good exercise, I think. Take a scene from a movie, no more than five minutes, and break, break down, it down every single thing that happened. Why like, did, what would you write down if you yeah, were reporting what, that? What did they give you? Why did they give you that? Um, so another word we picked was perspective. Because we talk about that all the time, too. Like, whose perspective are we telling? Whose point of view are we telling this story through? Yeah, and that's not something we think about very much in covering news stories. You know, you quote whoever the source is that you can quote. You get whoever the official is on the scene to tell you what's going on. But... Um, I think I might have mentioned this before. One of the first little narratives I did off the news was a, a um, zoning board story about they were going to change the height of the mailbox you could have. And so instead, I covered this whole meeting about why they wanted to change these mailbox sizes. And then an old man in the back of the room wanted to stand up during the public comment and explain why he had to put this really ugly owl mailbox that was huge up at the end of his driveway because his grandkid made it in eighth grade shop class. And that was the first time I remember like legit swiveling in my chair in a meeting and going, oh, that guy, that guy's the per point of view I need to tell the story of. He gives a darn, you know, and that's another thing I tell like young reporters or students I'm working with, like, you're going to get some freaking assignments you don't want to do, just like your bad English prompts in high school. You're going to get some things you don't want to cover, you don't want to write about. But if you can find a stakeholder who has a perspective that something really does matter, all of a sudden you've enabled yourself to invest your readers because this person cares, mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's worth this little exercise of like putting whoever your main subject is in the middle of a circle 
and then writing all the people who are around it, who, whose point of view or perspective could also illuminate what was happening. Right. Um, we talked about promise and payoff. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this amongst ourselves this morning. Uh, Maria had promise and payoff in the same line. And I said, oh, I think it's like two ends of the same arc, right? Because the promise is that thing at the beginning, the promise of the piece where you want to offer to your readers, here, dear readers, here's, you're in for a treat if you read this, or you're in to learn something or experience something, and you offer them something. But the payoff It's like you're me, buckling them in, and you're saying, hang in for the ride here. Right, right, exactly. I'm dangling a little rabbit in front of you. Come on, let's go on, you know, on this race. Um, but the payoff to me is is when that gets answered or explained or revisited, and um, I call it stick the landing. You know, like, okay, you've made it this far. Uh, now for the payoff, you want to really own the ending. Um, at, I didn't ever think about endings until about 10 years into this. I thought, okay, when it's over, I'll just wrap it up and put a good quote on the end, you know. And uh, Kelly Benham French really gave me a hard time for that. And uh, I spent a whole year working on endings. Um, and, I, and now I think uh, I can't start writing the story before I know where it's going to end. So, you know, if your readers along stays along with you, whether it's a thousand words or 10,000 words, they deserve an ending, mm -hmm. you know. And I, I always think of it as payoff. I mean, it's like, it's the, it's the, yeah. Are you giving them, do you, do you get to the end of the movie and walk out and think, oh, Jesus, why did I sit through that? You know, same thing with the story, you get to the end of it. And is it something that felt worthwhile to you? Um, tension, we've talked about recently in the podcast. Um, but I mean, it, it is one of those things, that if especially if you're trying to do storytelling, you have to think about how much tension is there? Um, you know, is, if there isn't any, it just, you're kind of losing before you even start, right? It's it's a harder battle as a writer. And sometimes it's up to the reporter to figure that out. You know, it's not always obvious, but I think yeah, you can... That's true, too. You can find it um, talking to your editor or even sometimes you don't know it's there until after you come back from your interview. You sometimes know, your characters like, don't know what's the big the big tension right. may be, you know? Um, and I mean, I've done tension where the, the, you know, the smallest tension was my man waiting to see if he was going to get a letter that day, mm -hmm. you know, but mm -hmm. some things at stake is this letter going to come and why is that important? Right. You know, a uh, theme, of course, we talk about a lot. Um, and we've talked a lot about how we try to express it in one word. You were the first person who made me ever think that there would be a theme to a newspaper narrative. Yeah, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't considered that possibility. And I remember my head exploding the first time you said, what's the theme of the story? But when, you know, once you start thinking that way and you start thinking about what's the story, how do, how do you reach other people? You know, you, especially, you know, you're writing stories sometimes about situations where the situation itself may not be universal, but the experience has some element to it that makes it universal. What is it? Is it you feel at a loss? You feel... Um, you know, a sense of a breakthrough moment. What is, what, how are you going to connect with your audience through this story? So, and doesn't it, I mean, to me, it's like, it helps me edit and I know it helps you write because we, we get a sense of what we're really trying to accomplish with this story. And what do we want people to feel when they walk away? If we have a really clear sense of what that word is, then, uh, you know, you, you, you take your reporting and you, and you use the material that really leads you there and you and you write it in a way that hopefully is going to get you to that that payoff. Yeah, I think it's it's hard sometimes to land on what that one word is. And we don't always agree either, you yeah. know, but once you get there, it, it elevates the story. Like you said, it helps readers make connections, but it also really helps me what to leave in and what to leave out, you know, when I'm writing or, or what to emphasize. 
you know, I can't remember. I was at some writing conference where someone had made a list of like the 25 universal themes, you know, uh, greed, revenge, love, hope, my favorite one, you know, faith. And they were trying to go through and write one story that hit on on each each theme. And I, I, I like that idea as an exercise, but I also feel like it's a little forced because I think a lot of times you don't know what the theme is until you've really gotten inside the story a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go look for a love story and you just found me one for Valentine's day. So thank you. Um, but you know, those other themes, I think sometimes they percolate to the top as you're doing the research and talking about putting it together. We had sense of place, which is not one word, but um, sense of place, um, which is something we think about a whole lot more than than you tend to do in in everyday news writing. You know, where where are we? Put put me in ground the reader, um, help them to to kind of have a feeling for where they are. Put your character there, right? And I think we should do more of that in news stories too. I mean, that's definitely a, a narrative storytelling term, but I think, you know, I, I think that's something we forget sometimes that we can transport readers in a way. I mean, I've been listening to too much of this impeachment coverage and the moment that got me yesterday was when they had the reporter come on and say, they all had to put their phones in these little cubbies and none of the senators can touch their phones for, you know, 12 hours at a time. And here's what it looks like on the floor where the pages are running around figuring, filling up water glasses. And I'm like, okay, now I'm in the you. impeachment yeah. trial, you know, I'm, and I'm investing in these people as people, not as like these elected official titles, you know? And right. so it was maybe, you know, four sentences on NPR, but it really helped It was me. context yes. you needed. Yeah. Um, we talk about senses, of course, and you, we've mentioned it here briefly, but um, how much more important that becomes um, to really, again, if you're trying to tell stories, to make you smell it and taste it and see it and have it come to life that way. Um, and we'll, we'll have moments when we're talking over a story and I'll, you know, I'll feel like, oh, well, there's, you could help me here. I, I don't, I don't see it enough or, or, you know, there's especially smell. Smell is an amazing um, tool that we don't always use. Um, that's, that's a habit that you have to get into. I think it's really easy to forget when you're writing down everything that everybody says and you're writing down action and you're writing down what's, you know, the context of it is to, I remind myself at the top of my notebook, I write down five senses and I want to fill each one of those in when I'm out and about somewhere, you know, but like you said, smell, if you can get one smell into a story, we, we were listening to this um, Al Stewart album this weekend. And there's this, uh, a line where he goes, you could tell it's about Brooklyn. It's like, you can tell by the smell of the hamburger stand in the rain. I thought that's perfect. Who can't, who can't picture that and be transported by the hamburger stand in the rain? You know, you're smelling the rain, the grease, the whatever. But I, I love when people make me smell something. I remember as a young reporter covering a plane crash in the woods. And the thing that has stuck with me all these years later is the smell. And I never put it in the story. It never even occurred to me to put it in the story. I was like, and I, and I think back now and it feels like, you know, I mean, I wrap myself, but also an editor for not saying, you know, take me to the scene of this thing. Tell me what it felt like, you know, and I did, you know, describe some of the, some of what I saw, but I didn't, I didn't include the rest of it. And, you know, it's so much more powerful. What did it smell like? You still remember? Burnt metal and, and flesh. I mean, it was, it was a really kind of awful smell, but. But that's what lingers for you after all this time. Right. Um, So. One final word, uh, witness, right? Which we've talked about sort of in, in that sort of, it kind of marries with action, of course, but being a witness, um, putting your, yourself in a position to do that kind of reporting, 
right? Because right. Um, actually, that's the one of the joys of narrative work is you learn to be a different kind of reporter, right? I, you never, when you start out, you don't you don't see yourself as a witness. You see yourself as a collector of information, right? Instead of somebody who who is observing things and and is you are the authority because you were there because you're watching it. Yeah. And you're not just reporting for the information to go back in a news story to go back and tell your readers what they need to know. You're trying to give them the whole picture of what's unfolding. So it's, it's a whole different way of like taking in the scene and the context and everything else. And, and I think I love stories like that. I love stories when I can be there and I can personally witness, but there's so many more ways now that you can recreate um, scenes, whether it's from, you know, YouTube videos or, or, cell phone videos or, you know, right. evidence photos or whatever that you can recreate stuff. But still, I don't think there's a, a substitution for being able to witness something live and in person. But even recreating, I mean, you know, bearing witness is sometimes just so much more po- powerful sometimes than, than keeping that distance. So. Absolutely. So that was 15. Those are 15 that we came across. And obviously if you have your words or you have your favorite words, please share them. We'd love to hear them. Um, we could do a whole other podcast. Part two. Part two. Um, okay. If you have a question for Lane or want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Don't forget, we have a face group, Facebook group now called Right Lane. You can find us there. Come join us. We have been trying to continue the conversation. We're trying to share things that interest us and build a community, build a community to talk about craft. So we'd love to have you there. Um, join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Allison Graves. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.